science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just happy. Well, I figured it wow. out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you stories on the theme of working memory, from the way we remember the events that impact us in childhood, to a family's attempt to reach someone whose memory is slipping away. Our first story this week is from Gerard Khalil. It was recorded in October 2016 at The Mint in Los Angeles, California. My last name's Khalil because when my father immigrated to the States when he was young, they switched his middle and last name. So I am technically first generation Khalil. I have no relatives with the last name. I am the first and hopefully not the last. Um, but I want to share a story today about how they met and kind of just the wonders of the world and how things kind of pan out. I, I wrote a three-page paper, basically, so bear with me as we get through this. I'm just going to use it as references. So Charles Khalil, or Charles Risha, as I've expressed to him, uh, came from the country of Lebanon in a war-torn state when he was... Uh, he moved to the States when he was about 18 years old. He uh, got really tired of living in you know, a country that's falling apart, and he wanted to make a name for himself by coming to America. So he moved to America. He learned five languages, took several classes, worked several jobs. Uh, you know, he was a mechanic. He was a, um, a mechanic uh, and a teacher's assistant. He uh, was a janitor. He did anything and everything he could learn about American culture any single way. And eventually, uh, he met my, my mom, Karen Reed, uh, at a gas station one day. He was the manager of a mobile gas station. Actually, I think it's, that gas station is actually on Pico and Westwood. Um, so we're actually not that far away from it, ironically enough. Um, and uh, he was managing this gas station, and uh, he saw this beautiful blonde woman come out, and she ran out of gas, and uh, she had no money to her name, and he didn't care. He was instantly magnetized to her. He saw her and became infatuated with her. And uh, back in the day, obviously, everyone smoked. So he was like, you know, hey, I uh, got some cigarettes, got some money. Let's, uh, let's go hang out. And so uh, they went on a date, ironically enough. And everything kind of went hunky-dory from there. They got married after dating for 10 years. And uh, they, uh, they had five kids. And uh, I am the youngest of five kids, so I'm the baby. Uh, my brother, or my, I'll start in order, because that's how I was learned to do that. Uh, <laughs> my sister, Lila, uh, was always kind of like the calculated, smart one of the group that was always like scared to meet new people, but very judgmental. Uh, my, my brother was the aggressive jock who, named Jacques, uh, who uh, was five foot six, but like jumping in the face of the biggest quarterback, headbutt first into them. So that was kind of, you know, abrasive guy. Um, my sister Monica was kind of the crazy rebellious one who, you know, smoked weed and stayed out late and, you know, never responded to her parents via pager, you know, like was kind of re rebellious. And then uh, my sister Kelly was the socialite. She was the one that was like, always going to Pop Warner and student council president and got good grades and was very controlling and educated and very had to have things for a specific way. And then there's me, the problem child. Um, I 
Uh, I was very quiet in the family. I didn't contribute much. I was a shy boy who didn't really like to do anything but play video games. Look how that turned out. Um, and uh, I, uh, I had a health problem. I was born with a spinal hemangioma, which was this benign tumor that was embedded in my spine. And back in the day, no one knew anything about this. Um, this part of the story, while it seems sciencey, isn't actually the sciencey focus. It's just letting you know for context. Um, so uh, when uh, we, when I was growing up, uh, money was not really around. But my father grew into it because my mom's dream was to own a flower shop, and so he. His whole life he worked hard for her and he got her a flower shop. And then she wanted to have five kids, so they had five kids. And he, you know, he wanted to, to make money and, and provide and really care for his family. And right around the, my 10th birthday, uh, my parents stopped being parents. They just kind of were like, ah, we did four. The last one can kind of take care of himself. Um, but more importantly, uh, my mom started changing. I saw a change in her uh, that was very different and very weird. To give you an idea, my father uh, owns three mobile gas stations in southern Los Angeles, as well as owns a marketing company based around mobile oil and the convenience industry. So if you go to like a Chevron or a mobile gas station or a Circle K and you see all the nice, pretty back bar designs and stuff, my father is probably one of the people that brought that to the table. And so uh, he, in the, in the 90s, was thriving in his industry. He was making you know, million dollar deals and, and working his, his butt off. And, you know, my mom was taking care of all five of us kids doing, you know, there's five of us, right? So that means we all have to learn languages. We all have to play 18 different instruments. We have to, you know, be on student council and cotillion and Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and all that stuff. And so she was a super person. She was a super mom just doing all these incredible things. And uh, around my 10th birthday, she just was like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. And so uh, my dad said, well, what can we do, Karen? What, what can we do to, you know, what can, I, what can I do next? You know, you wanted the flower shop, I got you the flower shop. You wanted the kids, I got you the kids. You know, you wanted the money, we got the money. Like, what more can I do for you? I want to make sure that, you know, this family is a family. And of course my mom was like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. It's just I can't be a super mom all the time. I need to do something for me and, and for our family in a way that uh, doesn't feel like I'm just doing a nine to five. And so my mom got this idea. She wanted to make her kids a star. Well, one of them at least, a star. That's what was her, her whole thing, is she wanted to make someone famous. And so uh, she knew nothing about the music industry. She knew nothing about fame or fortune in that regard. She didn't know anything, but all she knew was that she wanted to do this thing, and she was very driven. And my mom was a very driven person. She, oh, the things that she would do. So um, she got what she wanted. My, my father financed her company, and... Uh, this company was awful. Just waste of money. Uh, no direction, had no contacts. No one involved was able to kind of help her shape what she was doing. And uh, she was kind of fledgling and she didn't know what to do. And so then she met a man named Bill Head. Now Bill Head uh, was a country singer, a retired musician from, from Kansas City uh, who'd moved out to uh, California to try and, and get his hands into young talent and produce them and kind of live off of their royalties. And he had an idea of the music industry. So he kind of came in. He was like a six-foot-four, skinny, you know, just long, greasy hair, hat, glasses, very, like, you don't trust this guy. He just, it's, it's, it's just kind of, kind of creepy. Um, and so he and my mom... Uh, started this company together 
And when I say started this company together, I mean he asked for money and she gave him everything he asked for. And lo and behold, this man known as Bill Head was actually not Bill Head. He was a con man from Tennessee who had just convinced my mom to give him over $500,000 in hopes to create this company. But at that point, my mom was so excited and so happy to see what she was building that the money that she was spending didn't really matter. She was happy and she started changing even more and more and more as the days went on. And eventually, um, she found herself back into faith. My family you know, is technically Catholic, Christian, but uh, we don't really go to church or anything, but my mom suddenly got re-energized by faith. And, and, and Bill at the time, this guy was like, oh yeah, I know all about faith. I know all the, the pastors and the, the people from the West Coast to the East Coast, let's go on a tour. And so suddenly uh, I, having a medical condition, was yanked out of school and I did a tour with my, with my mom and this stranger to all the different pastors from the West Coast to the East Coast. And so uh, there's probably even footage of me online somewhere. The Trinity Broadcasting Network, they used to have those, those public sermons when the guys would smack you in the head and you'd fall over and the tongues are coming out. And, uh, you know, people are, you know, there's, there's got to be footage of me somewhere of, you know, 12-year-old me just getting smacked in the head and waking up in the hotel room the next day. But... Uh, my, uh, my mom took me on this incredibly long journey that made no goddamn sense. Uh, I should not have gone, I should not have graduated into sixth grade. Uh, I missed nine months of school and uh, I didn't really remember much of that time. But what I did remember was I saw my mom transform. She went from being a woman who was about strong principles and family and love and care to a woman who was being manipulated into someone who loved drinking and alcohol and drugs and uh, didn't entrusted everyone and had no ability to judge or say what she was doing. She was just kind of feeding the machine, if you will. So after nine months of traveling on the road, meeting minister after minister, I stole her cell phone and I called my dad and I said, I want to come home. And my dad, for some weird reason, didn't piece together that I was with her. He thought that there was caretakers at home because my father was running a business. He was traveling all over the world literally every single week. And so he was like, why aren't you not in school? And so he pieced, he pieced everything together and said, oh my God, he's, he needs to go home. So my mom comes back uh, from this long trip and my dad looks at the, at this, at the bank account statements and all of the money and, and all the trips and everything and she'd spent a lot of money, maxed her credit cards, uh, all this stuff. And my, my dad was like, what, are you, what happened? What's going on? And my mom said, I don't care. I'm, I'm sad in this relationship. I'm getting a divorce. It's over. And my father, now most men in the situation would probably freak out, be upset, and, and really just like go through a lot of emotional changes. And my father, for some weird reason, didn't. He just kind of like suddenly was playing poker and just was like, I know what I'm doing now. Something's not right. And so he assessed everything that was going on. And my mom was talking about divorce, taking all of his hard work and the family and the kids. And all of his kids had saw everything. We had witnessed everything that was going on and we knew that something wasn't right. And so my father said, you can divorce me and take everything you want as long as you go with me to the doctor. And she was like, oh, that's easy. Let's go to the doctor. That sounds like an easy, easy trip. Well, that trip to the doctor 
lasted about three and a half months worth of testing. And she got tested and tested and tested and no one knew what was wrong with her, but there was something chemically wrong in her brain. They couldn't figure out why she was changing the way that she was. And it took almost two and a half years from there. I was 14 years old. It was my first day of high school. And we're all getting together. I get called out of class. We go to uh, the doctor's office over in uh, Gardena. And the doctor says, your mom has been diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. Now, frontotemporal dementia is basically Alzheimer's, except where Alzheimer's is more the back of the brain, frontal, part, frontal lobes are more, or the tubes in the front are more the emphasis of this, of this uh, illness. And what we saw was instead of someone forgetting who she knew or memories or anything, she actually regressed in a way where she forgot things and how to talk and how to communicate and how to be a human being. And so uh, I remember sitting there in the room and everyone in the, in the room is crying around me and I'm sitting here going, okay, I know we're all sad, but what's the next step? Because this is going to suck for a long time and we need to kind of push forward. And so uh, that's when things changed one final time where I didn't think I would, was gonna go this really big journey. So my mom basically regretted to the state of a child until she passed away. But what was interesting is how the body remembered everything of who she was long after she was gone from her brain. What I mean is this, every morning at 5 a.m., 14-year-old Gerard with his big brother and his dad would wake up at 5 a.m., bathe my mom, feed her, clothe her, get her ready for her nap. I'd go to school. I'd, I'd do my comedy sports and my improv classes and my, my drama classes. And then I'd come home and I'd finish up what was left off. And then I'd do homework at 11, 12 o'clock midnight. And I did it over and over and over again till I was 18 years old and looking to go to schools. And in the middle of my sophomore year, usually someone who's diagnosed with FTD uh, lasts about six and a half months, uh, mostly due to malnutrition, just not getting enough food, not eating enough, not being present uh, in the moment and, and listening and reacting. And so uh, the doctor, you know, she was on life support. Uh, she wasn't doing well. They, they said that she's just not going to make it. And so one day, my dad and I were sitting in uh, at home and he started going through family albums and photos and videos and started archiving kind of how they met and reminisced about all these things they did together and their lives they built. And, and he popped in a, an old video cassette of uh, my mom making this lasagna dish, this one that her mother had taught her when she was a kid. And it was one of her favorite dishes. And she had this particular way of how much cheese and what kind of, of noodle product and what kind of meat went into it. And my dad just kind of said, this is really stupid, but what if she's still in there somewhere? What if we can prepare this dish and her body will remember what it was like to make it and what it was like to create it, what it was like to eat it and get her out of the hospital? Because she wasn't drinking any insurance, she was ripping out IVs, she was causing problems for everyone. And so uh, we, made this, we made this meal, this lasagna, and uh, she instantly ate all of it with her fists, just consumed it as much as she could. And for 18 months from then on, she ate lasagna, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
every single day. We, made, we got up early, we'd made lasagna by the bulk, and it was in the fridge, and it was nice and cookie-cut clean, and, you know, and sometimes when we weren't home, she'd sneak in the fridge and eat it just cold because that's what she wanted, and uh, after that, uh, she got sick of it. And so we said, what do we do? We need a new dish. And uh, my dad said, well, the, one of the favorite things she loved was uh, going to a Chinese restaurant, the Szechuan down the street from her house, and she loved honey-glazed walnut shrimp. And that restaurant was still open. So my dad went down there, and he bought 10 pounds of honey-glazed walnut shrimp, brought it back, plopped it down, and she ate that every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for another three years. And so we were retroactively keeping her alive by using the memories of her body with mind and sense and smell to keep her going for as long as she could. And while this was going on, I saw this transformation. It was, it's creepily something out of The Walking Dead. I saw this woman go from saying, give me that fork, give me that knife, give me that spoon, to give me that gray, give me that blue, give me that silver, to even... Give me that thing. I want that thing to thing, 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 to nothing. And this went on my entire high school and college career. And it wasn't until um, 2013 that she passed away to uh, malnutrition. She was unable to eat, speak, do anything. She was bedridden. And uh, she passed away with her family all around her. But I will say that as sad as the story is, my mom was a strong as hell woman and she went down fighting every single step of the way. And more importantly, uh, she is the longest lasting survivor of to, to date with someone who's been diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. They gave her six months. She said, screw you, I'm gonna live 15 years. She pushed the boundaries of what science knew and what people knew about this illness and uh, for me, I, you know, she wanted one of her kids to be a star. That's what she kept saying. I want my kids to, to change the world with what they're doing and, and to become the brightest star they can be, to show them how much happiness that, uh, you know, she got from her kids. And ironically enough, uh, I'm that star. I have over half a million subscribers on YouTube. I run my own production company employing 14 employees worldwide. I get to meet some of the latest and greatest in both film and games. And, uh, you know, I would not be here had I lived such an incredible, crazy journey with her and my family. And, uh, you know, being the youngest of five uh, teaches you a lot. And uh, my mom and dad always used to say this phrase, and they still, and she, my dad says this to this day, and he says, one of us, when you're alone, by yourself, you're a stick. You can be broken, you can bend, and you can be destroyed. But when all five of you kids get together, you're a bundle and no one can break you and break you down. And that's the philosophy we've ever lived as a family. Until this day, we're all healthy, we're all still doing the best in our industries. And uh, without my mom, uh, I would not be here today, probably on this microphone. So yeah, that's the story of Karen Khalil. Thank you guys for uh, taking your time. I appreciate it. That was Gerard Khalil. Gerard is a YouTuber, actor, writer, and performer. You can find him online at 
at JKCompletesIt on Twitter and that one video gamer on YouTube. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. If you're looking for more podcasts, try Bite, the podcast from Mother Jones for people who think hard about their food. Join food and farming blogger Tom Philpott, editors Kira Butler and Maddie Oatman, and a tantalizing guest list of writers, farmers, scientists, and chefs as they uncover the surprising stories behind what ends up on your plate. In their first season, they found out what happens when restaurants ditch tipping, learned all about the fraudulent food in your kitchen cabinet, discovered what goes into Nasty Woman Cocktail, and more. CNN called Byte one of the best food podcasts of 2016. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you about an app that, crazily enough, is designed to get you to stop looking at your phone and go out into the real world. It's called Detour. Imagine listening to one of your favorite podcast hosts take you on a walk through their favorite neighborhood in the world and telling you all its secrets. That's what a Detour is, an immersive audio story that knows where you are. They have 150 different audio walks, from Radiolab to Ken Burns, from a leader of San Francisco's gay rights movement to a Broadway star in New York, and they weave through some of the most fascinating neighborhoods around the world. Plus, when you walk with your friends, you can sync your audio so you all hear the same thing at the same time. Detour is a magical way to explore places with people who know them best. Go to detour.com slash story to get your first audio walk free. That's detour.com slash story. Welcome back. Our second story this week is from, well, me. It was recorded in December 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. In fifth grade, uh, when we walked in the door every day, the teacher would have written up on the board our schedule. 9 a.m., English. 10 a.m., Social Studies. Uh, 11 a.m., math, and it would just go on, and like that's how we'd know what we were doing for the day, because fifth grade classroom, you do all kinds of different things. And So one Monday, I walk in, and it says 9 a.m., social studies, 10 a.m., social studies, 11 a.m., social studies, noon, lunch, 1 p.m., social studies, 2 p.m., social studies, 3 p.m., go home. And that was the day. And we're all like, oh, something's going to happen. Now, this had happened before. Um, our, our fifth grade teacher liked to have us do these big classroom things. Um, and so the the whole year was Wild West themed. Um, so they're always Wild West themed. I grew up in Oregon, so actually a lot of years were Wild West themed. But <laughs> So we he would have us do these things. Like, like earlier in the year, we had played uh, the Oregon Trail, like the video game, but like LARPing. And so like we had groups and uh, we had to like pick what we were putting in our wagons and try and get across the Oregon ter- territory. And it was great because like I had a team and like I wasn't the kind of kid who had a team. Like I wore uh, sweatpants to school every day. I didn't have a team. But for that, I had a team. It didn't go well. We got stuck in the mountains. It went all Donner Party. It was pretty bad, actually. But, um, but you know, things like that were great. So when we, we walked in this day, we knew some kind of big activity was going to happen. And we walk in, and the teacher, Mr. Swanson, goes, all right, here's some cards. And he gave us all five cards. And this was Wild West-themed. So on each of these cards was something Wild Westy, like a musket, or hardtack, or a fur. 
you know, like they had in the West. And uh, so we each got dealt five of these cards, and he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. This is a trading game. Your objective is to trade to make better value. I don't remember if he said value. Better something for yourself. And so, like, we were supposed to trade, and we were supposed to get points for the cards in our hand. And uh, they had different values. So, like, a musket was worth five, and a hardtack was worth two. But you could make sets. So, like, a hardtack was worth two, but three hardtacks was worth eight or something. I don't remember the actual numbers. But it was like, all right, so you need to trade with each other and make sets and get points. And this is going to teach us something. (laughs) And so he's like, all right, there's just a few more rules. He explained the whole rules of the game and then set us out to trade with each other. And we had like 10 minutes to trade and make sets and and get points. All right. Now, some of the rules were kind of weird. There was a whole bunch of them, but three of them were particularly odd. Um, The first rule was that if you were uh, trading with somebody, you had to, you couldn't show them your hand. You had to tell them what you wanted. You had to tell them what you had to offer, and they had to do the same. You couldn't just like look at each other's hands and decide what to trade. And like you can sort of like I, as a fifth grader, I couldn't have told you this, but you can sort of see how that makes sense. Like maybe you know, learning the value of communication or like asymmetric information in interactions. Like economists might say something like that. And. Um, <laughs> The second weird rule was that if you started trading with someone, you had to trade. You couldn't walk away from the trade, and you couldn't trade the exact same thing. You like had to make an actual substantive trade. And the economists I've talked to about that tell me that that is all about about what what the what why would you do that? What that doesn't mean anything. What is that? That's what they said. Um, <laughs> And the third weird rule was that while you were trading with someone, you had to hold hands. <laughs> I got nothing on that one. But so those were the rules, and we had 10 minutes. We got five cards. We had to trade and make the best thing that we could. We did it. And after that, you went up to Mr. Swanson. You showed him your hand. He said, all right, you got this many points. You're supposed to write that up on the board. And we're like, all right. And we sat down at our desks. And he's like, all right, we're going to do that again. So we did it again. Cards, trade, hold hands, not be able to show each other, all that stuff. 10 minutes, show them points. All right. All right, we're going to do it again. And we're going to do it again. And we're going to do it again. And that is all we did that entire day is we just traded these cards. We got points. And it was sort of Wild West themed. And we're like, what is going on? But all right, fine. You know, we don't have to like do math or read or... Some of us liked, but some people in the class did. Anyway, we're just like, all right, fine. Uh, so we did that, and then we went home, and then we came back the next day. 9 a.m., social studies. 10 a.m., social studies. 11 a.m., whole day. We're like, all right, I guess we're going to do that again. So we sit down, and he deals out the deck, and we, we play a couple hands, and he says, all right, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing this all day. But we're just gonna make uh, we're gonna make one change, uh, a couple changes, in fact. So the first change is he said, "All right, everyone, look at the scores on the board, and figure out who are the seven highest scoring kids in the class." I'm like, all right. So all right, also figure out who are the seven lowest scoring kids in the class. And then he says, "Get into groups." I was in the highest scoring group because obviously I'm brilliant, <laughs> or I got good cards. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, so. We split into groups, and he says, all right, here's what you're going to do. And he had these uh, plastic uh, 
like conference name tag things where it's like a little plastic thing and you can stick a, something you've printed out in it. And he goes up to those of us in the highest scoring group and he says, here, you're gonna wear these. And he gave us these little plastic things and each of them had a green triangle. And he goes to the middle group and he says, all right, you guys each get these and he gave them an orange square. And he goes to the lowest scoring group and he says, all right, you guys get these, you get a purple circle. He says, what you're gonna do is you're gonna wear these around school all day while we're playing this game. By the way, we're playing it all week. And we're like, okay, so we put on our little name badges and we were the green triangles and there was the orange squares and the purple circles. And we wore these badges. And if some of you are looking at me right now and you're going like, wait a minute, did he just say badges? Is this gonna get really dark? <laughs> Is this gonna be like some Lord of the Flies shit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because the other thing that changed was he said, all right, in between each trading round, for five minutes, the green triangles can sit in a circle. It has to be unanimous, but as long as it's unanimous, you can make up any rule you want. Somebody over here just said, oh my God, which is correct. And we're like, all right, we can make up any rule we want. So we sat in the circle and the first thing we did, very first thing, we repealed all three of those stupid rules. Because why would you have those? Those were really dumb. And in retrospect, that's exactly what those rules were there for. They were there so we could remove them to legitimize our regime. The time it took us to go from that, from making an obvious rule that helped the whole class, to making the rule that because we were working so hard for everyone, we deserved an extra card, was just over 24 hours. And we did it. And we kept playing. Came in the next day when we made that rule, social studies all day. And now people in the class were starting to go, ugh, I don't want to be doing this. And all of us in the Green Triangles were like, yeah. Like I had a team, I had a group, this was awesome. My other Green Triangles really loved it. We came in the next day after we made that new rule, Thursday, 9 a.m., social studies, 10 a.m., social studies. I'm like, yeah, this is fun, all right, we get to do more of this. My friend Mac, uh, who was a, a, an orange square, was like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm like, why not, it's fun. He's like, no, it's not fun. Lunch that day, on Thursday, uh, we had been playing this game just over and over again. I go out to lunch, and a lot of days, um, my friend Mac and I, we would play this game uh, during recess called wall ball. It's pretty simple. You get a ball, you find a wall, you hit the ball against the wall. It's great. It's a great game. I recommend it. And, and Mac and I would play this, and I, so I, on this Thursday, I found him, and I, I said, hey, Mac, you know, I checked out the ball. And he's like, no, I don't want to play. And I, what, what are you talking about? And he says, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Why would I want to play with you? And I'm like, what? Do you, what? And he's like, what you guys are doing is unfair. You, that rule is, is, is insane. There's other rules I've forgotten. He was upset about it. And I'm like, why are you upset? We're making everything better. We're working harder. He's like, no, you're not. You're not. And if it sounds like he's being very sharp for a fifth grader, he grew up to be a civil rights lawyer. Um, <laughs> he was very good. I didn't get it. And we argued and we, we, we like left and I went to find the other green triangles and get back in there in the afternoon. We're back in the class, dealing cards, trading cards. 
Now, one rule we hadn't repealed was um, that the green triangles, that the power group, was the seven highest scoring people. And there was one of the orange squares had been getting enough points that they were going to surpass one of the green triangles. Because even despite the extra stuff we had passed to make it easier for us, one of them, let's call him Scott, because I don't remember his name, and I kind of hate Scott. Sorry if there's one in the room. Um, <laughs> he hadn't been doing well. And uh, so we were talking about this. We're like, in a round or two, Scott's going to go down, and it's going to switch. And someone's like, well, we have to pass a rule to make sure that doesn't happen. I was like, wait, wait, what? We have to do what? And someone's like, yeah, we have to like stick up for our team. And so someone else says, well, what, what should we do? And we hadn't uh, changed the rule that it had to be unanimous. So we're all talking about this. And so someone says, uh, well, uh, we should just give them 100 points. 100 was a lot. We should just give them 100 points. I'm like, all right, we can do that. And, and it goes around the circle. And everyone's like, yes, 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 yes. It gets to me. And I'm like, that, that feels wrong. Like I'd, I'd been thinking about this thing Max said. Just the whole thing felt wrong. So I said, I don't think we should do that. And they got pissed. They got angry. And they were like, what are you talking about? This isn't wrong. We have to protect our team. And another kid was like, we, we have to like stick together. I was like, it doesn't feel fair. And we were saying this out loud. And we're all in the same classroom as the other kids. So the rest of the class heard what we were talking about doing. And they started getting very pissed off because they should be. And they started yelling. And they started screaming. And they are coming towards us. And they're, they're standing up. And they're screaming about fairness. And I'm listening to that. And then the other green triangles are sitting here. And they're talking about how to stick up for your team and I'm sitting there going I don't know what to do I don't know what to do and the one thing I knew and I couldn't have put it in these words at the time as a, t as a 10 year old but I knew that this was important like this decision was important because it would tell me the kind of person that I was right was I the kind of person that stuck with my team and and did the thing for the team or was I the kind of person who did what was right and what was fair and what was just or on the flip side was I the kind of person who just wielded power for the sake of wielding it and like because that was intoxicating or and I can't come up with a bad thing for the other decision because it's clearly the right one but uh, <laughs> but like this decision mattered and like would tell me who I was and I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do with everyone yelling at me now, over the last couple of years, uh, I have spent a lot of time talking to two groups of people. One of them are people who understand stories and narrative. And they have taught me a lot of things like, for example, if you pause just before revealing a crucial bit of information, you can get through a lot of exposition. <laughs> the other group I've spent a lot of time talking to is neuroscientists. And one of the things neuroscientists tell you that is fascinating is that our memories do not behave the way we think they do. Not even close. They are very, very fragile things. So we think that something happens and you record the memory like it's on a hard drive. And then every time you want to remember it, you just read it off the drive, right? I remember this thing. I remember this thing. I remember this thing. That's not what happens. It turns out when you remember something, you sort of crystallize it. And then, or when, you, when it happens, and then when you want to remember it, you pull it out of storage and it becomes this living thing that you think about as you remember it, and then you put it back. And then the next time you remember it, you're not really remembering that thing, you're remembering the last time you remembered it. And then the next time you're remembering the memory of the last time you remembered remembering it. And this keeps happening, and every time you pull it out and then put it back, you can kind of fuck with it. You can kind of <laughs> twist it. 
and little imperfections can go in. And so counterintuitively, the more you remember something, the less accurate the memory is. And we can distort the memories that we have by the way we tell it to people or the things people say to us as we are telling them the story or by who we want to be. And the other thing that both the neuroscientists and the narrative people tell me is that we tell stories about the things that we did in the past as a way of affirming who we are in the present and who we want to be in the future. We tell stories about ourselves as a way of establishing our own identity and our own sense of our goodness and our place in the world. So there are two endings to this story, and you know what both of them are. I'm going to take you through them briefly. Ending one. I am sitting there. I don't know what to do. The green triangles are yelling at me about being part of the team. Everyone else is yelling at me about fairness. Finally, I say, no, we can't pass this rule. It's unfair. We have to not do it. I'm not voting yes. And the green triangles go nuts. They start screaming at me. The rest of the, the class is relieved. Finally, one of us has done something right. There's all kinds of general chaos. And Mr. Swanson, the teacher, steps in and ends the game. And he says, later, as we're all sitting in class, that this has been an exercise in what happens when one group gets unlimited power over another group. As you've all guessed, that was the point. He told us that in fact our year was one of the tamest, that sort of the least bad stuff happened that year <laughs> compared to other years that he had done this. And in later years, I would both be grateful to him for having taught us that lesson and have deep reservations about the ethics of doing that to fifth graders. <laughs> like, seriously, what the fuck? Ending two. I'm sitting there. The green triangles are yelling at me, saying, you have to be part of the team. Everyone else is saying, you know, you have to do the thing that's fair. The green triangle is saying, this, you have to be on our side. I say, yes, you're right. I have to side with the team. We pass the rule. The guy gets 100 points. Everyone else in the room starts going nuts. They start running at us. It looks like they're going to throw things. Mr. Swanson steps in, ends the game, etc., etc. Exactly the same. Now, here's the thing about that story. I have told it so many times. I have told it to people to tell them what a great person I am. I have told it to people to tell them what a horrible person I am. I have told it to myself in both ways. I have told it with all kinds of endings. I have no idea, no idea which of these is correct. <laughs> Absolutely none whatsoever. I was right about one thing though. I thought in that moment that this was important that this moment would define who I was as a person. And I was correct. What I didn't know is that I would become a person who was obsessed with uncertainty and ambiguity and nuance and how it exists in the world. And what I finally realized Mr. Swanson was teaching us was that absolute power corrupts, not because of evil in the world or inherent badness, but because we all tell ourselves that we are the heroes of the story. And we don't know if that's true. Thank you. That was me. I'm co-founder and chairman of the board of the Story Collider. I'm a high-energy particle physicist who left the ivory tower for the wilds of New York's theater district. My new event space, Caveat, will open in New York City September 5th, 2017. 
If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. And for any amount, we'll be incredibly grateful. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Ahmad, Ellie Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and The Mint for hosting these shows, and to my teacher for conducting his weird social experiment in fifth grade class and giving me a story to tell, and a perspective on life, and a political orientation, and a lot of sleepless nights and and, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.